Good afternoon, everyone. This is uh, the Dorsey Wright podcast. It's uh, June 14th, 2017, and we've got a bit of a special presentation for you today uh, with the focus being on options and I would say even the evolution of options on Wall Street. And uh, today we're uh, joined with uh, two guests that are, are experts in that field. Um, obviously, uh, all of you are, know and are very familiar with Tom Dorsey, and we'll talk a little bit about his options background, and it's a story that uh, many of you may not be aware of, but also many of you uh, longtime clients of ours will certainly be able to relate to, and I think some nostalgia will kick in. We also have Wade Gunther with us. Uh, from Horizons ETFs, and Wade has been in the uh, in our industry for over 16 years, and much of that, about half of that, has been specifically in the ETF uh, side of our industry. And he, he he spent the last six years with Horizon ETFs, and um, many of you guys who are uh, clients of ours, you're familiar that we have a, a model with Horizon uh, that utilizes um, uh, some of their uh, options overlaid uh, single QTIP product. So we'll get into that. Uh, but first of all, Wade, uh, thank you uh, so much for joining us today from New York. And Tommy, thank you for making the time uh, while you should be uh, relaxing in Florida. So thank you both for joining us today. You're welcome. Great to be here. And Tommy, I think we should start at the beginning when you started in this business, and I won't say how long ago it was. Uh, you can if you'd like. But it was really probably the wild west of options would you say yeah it, it it certainly was paul um as you know it's been 43 years when i first started in the business which was probably the end of 1974 early 1975 and although options have been around since the tulip bulbs craze in in holland you know that goes back is it the 1500s or something in that area uh options were used on ships that were bringing tulip bulbs from uh, Holland to, to England. So the auctions are nothing new under the sun. It's just that in 1974, they finally were listed. When I was, I started as a stockbroker at Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner and Smith back in, in the end of 1974. And, and later, after a number of years of being a stockbroker, I went to Wheat First Securities and developed and managed their first option strategy department. And I remember back then, options were over the counter. So if you wanted to, let's say, sell a call against a particular stock, you had to call us, and then we called someone else like Marsh Block or someone, and they went out and they found someone to take the other side of the trade, and the other side of the trade was locked in. Then you were locked there until expiration to see exactly what happened. In 1974, in April, they listed options on the Chicago Board Options Exchange. So this was the first time that options were liquid, and they became a viable um, investment strategy in customers' accounts. Now, you got to think back then, in 1973-74, customers had been totally, unequivocally wiped out. That bear market, there were no tools to, to, to uh, play against that bear market. They wrote, basically rode that, that down and lost 60% of the value in the portfolio. They were not interested in coming back to investing. Um, one of them was high commissions, and another one was that the stock market uh, had just whacked them totally. But when options came online in April of 1974, this brought something brand new into the equation. This was a way that we looked at, erroneously so, that we could buy stocks cheaper. And customers began to look at that. And he said, gee, I can, I can buy IBM for uh, $200, or I can buy 1,000 shares for $2,000. 
well, gee, that's a, that's a wonderful thing. We didn't realize we were holding time bombs. And so, so Tommy, I mean, I go, I could, it was really so initially uh, in client accounts, the kind of version 1.0 of options in the business was certainly not risk management. It was more like uh, you know risk exaggeration, right? Absolutely. We were in Las Vegas, and and the problem was that none of us had any real experience in this at all. And there were no books and things. The way I learned options was going home on a weekend with a legal pad and a pencil and working out different types of strategies arithmetically. We didn't know what we were doing. So it took a while for people to understand options. There was nothing written on it at that point in time, no books on the strategy. But all of a sudden, here they were. They were trading. I think in the beginning, we didn't have maybe 25 different stocks, but eventually that began to swell to quite a few. Um, but that's where it kind of all started back then. It was a wild, wild west. People called into their brokers to take risk. Um, mainly, you know, the, and, and the main reason back then, as you well know, Paul, is everyone had the defined benefit plans. You worked for Philip Morris. You worked for DuPont. You had your retirement account set up. All you had to do was get to the end. So when you called your broker, you called your broker to basically take risk. So eventually – Obviously, your view and your your knowledge of options obviously evolved because you were recruited by Week First Securities to come and open their first option strategy department. What changed in the way that you found to be useful in using options with client accounts over the years? Well, what changed back then was when when I was a stockbroker at Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner, and Smith. In the beginning, there we I was dealing with customers who were calling me. They wanted me to help them take risk. Then when I, I, I set up the option strategy department a week for securities, now my customers were professionals. These were the advisors and the brokers. You know, I couldn't come to them with, with clear ideas every day on, on taking risk. I need to find ways that they could make money for their customers, take a slower approach. Uh, and, and you had to think the whole time about potential litigation for the firm and things of that nature. So my life changed tremendously going from the individual investor side to the professional side. I had to change the way I thought about options. And so I think still probably many people listening to this would say, well, options, you know, those are leveraged instruments. Those are derivative products. Those are things that are designed to, to add risk, to add volatility, to add leverage. How is it that an option strategy could be used to do anything other than that? Well, there's two sides to the coin. You know, if, if you have in an, option, in an option strategy, you can – wait, did you want to grab that? Sure. If you – yeah, if you have a, an option strategy, I mean, the other side of the coin is you can buy puts for protection and actually take the risk of your equity positions off the table or in the case of what we do is we do covered rights where we – we, we write calls in order to get to earn extra premium. So when in the event that the this, this stocks decrease, your portfolio is padded by uh, an additional layer of income that reduces the negative return that the, the investor um, would achieve if the stocks if they just held the stocks outright. So it, we find that using covered right is a very good risk mitigation strategy. And so a covered right, for, so for the uninitiated, the option is not 
the sole piece of the exposure. It's not just a, a naked call that presents uh, in an un unlimited risk potential, but instead there's an underlying piece and then also a call written together, right, Wade? Correct. So the investor owns the, the stock and then writes the call against the stock position. So if the stock remains at or below the strike price, then they would retain the call premium at expir expiration. And then if the stock were to increase above the strike price at expiration, then, then they would have a liability for the for the difference. Let's uh, let's talk about the simplicity of, of the way I think about it. And when you think about a covered right, I think about let's say you went out and you bought a house and you decided you wanted to rent that house. And I came to you and I said I'd like to rent that house for the next six months. And you said fine. Um, I'll also give you the right at the end of six months to buy this house from me for $100,000. And I say, fine, I'll, I'll go ahead and rent the house. I'm paying you rent for the next six months. I go to a real estate agent at the end of six months say, what's the value of my house? He does the comps around the area and says, gee, your house is now worth $150,000. Okay, then I accept it. I buy that house from that individual I rented it from. I now own a house worth $150,000, and I can then rent that out to someone else if I choose, or I can just hold the house. So the concept of the two people together, the renter and the house owner, really makes it, I think, simple. Because let's say I, I go to that real estate agent at the end of the six months, and I'm paying rent, and he says, you know, your house, the cops around the area here are now $95,000. You know, you, there's no way you'd get 100 for your house. Then fine. What I'll do is just keep renting the house. My option expired worthless. The guy gave me a chance to buy it for six months. I rent it from him again. He says, the next six months, hey, I'll give you the right to take the stock away from me at, at $100 uh, uh, or $100,000. It's now $95,000. So I'm going to charge you less rent. So that's, that's the kind of way I like to think about it that makes sense to me in a simplistic way. So in that scenario, the, the covered writer is the homeowner and the call buyer is the renter. Yes. Yes. The homeowner is going to sell the call to the call buyer. And and has and has uh paid the mortgage on the house, he owns the house, yep. and he has the option either have a renter in there paying income or take all of the risk of simply owning the house in a fluctuating market. So the same yep. could be said for IBM, you could simply hold IBM or you could rent it out by selling calls to someone else who's interested in having the right to purchase that stock at a certain price until a yeah. certain time. Right, um, exactly, so, exactly. And when you came in production, Tommy, I'm guessing there was no single QCIP product that allowed you to buy the no. house, bring in the renter in one, uh, in, in one wrapper, one. right? No way, <laughs> there, was, there was nothing there. It was just about 25 or 30 stocks in the beginning that were listed with calls, not all of them with puts. And that was it. Here you are. You're just thrown into the ring and say, here it is. Here they are. Go do what you're going to do with them. And Lord knows, we didn't know what we were doing. So, Wade, where has the industry come to now? The industry has come a long way. I think a lot of uh, industry partners are looking at alternative ways to finance or to help enhance income in portfolios particularly because 
this long, prolonged period of zero interest rates or very low interest rates, bond income fixed is the fixed income is just not enough to asset liability manage for a lot of retirees. So again, option premium and writing calls in portfolios has been uh, another alternative way to to enhance income in in client portfolios. Well, so yeah, there's a lot of things with interest rates that we consider to be rate sensitive. You're right. Interest rates go up. There's a lot of risk, added risk now um, to, you know, long duration treasuries and a lot of things that people use for fixed income. How do interest rates affect the option premium? The interest rates really have very little effect on the amount of option premium. Now, if you just simply take the Black and Scholes option pricing model and substitute the the value for the interest rate, it's just, just the risk-free rate, which is essentially what 25 basis points it would be like a, a typical three or 40 basis points for a typical three-month U.S. Treasury. There's we're talking a very little value for the the risk-free interest rate component that goes into the option pricing model. It's just not, it's not a, a principal pricing factor. So it's something that can um, be viewed as an income stream, but it is not necessarily as rate sensitive as many of the other traditional income streams that uh, conservative clients use. Not at all. I would say yeah. things like the, the, the stock price and the strike price and implied volatility are significantly uh, more, um, are, are the primary components of the option valuation than than interest rates. So what is it, for those that are not familiar with Horizons and what they have um, built in the ETF space, what, have, what are you guys doing with options inside of ETFs? So we have a few income solutions. We have the uh, Horizons S&P 500 covered call ETF, and that is the the, the basket of the S&P 500, all 500 stocks, or I guess 506, and we write single stock options on as many names as possible. So we try and capture the the most implied volatility using the single the, the single stock options, and we write about a 25 delta. Now for the um, for investors, 25 delta is just saying that there's approximately a 75% chance that the option premium will be will be retained for the period. So we would like to, uh, the objective is to have the portfolio participate about 75% of the, the upside of the S&P 500 and retain m most of the call premium in order to, to add extra income. And the result has been has been pretty good. We there's about an annualized yield of about 3.75% to 4% depending on on the period, which is almost double of the the equity yield on the S&P 500 stocks themselves. And the second one is is QILD, which is the Nasdaq 100 covered call. And that one writes index options. Now, 
it's a little bit different because it doesn't it doesn't try and capture the the um, the implied volatility of all the individual names, but it also smooths out the the single stock bias that individual stocks tend to have. For example, Amazon comes out with earnings, it beats, and the stock increases, I don't know, 10% in a day. That covered right would likely finish in the money, and then there would be a liability position in the portfolio. The NASDAQ 100 writing index options smooths out those kinds of instances by writing writing calls on the NASDAQ 100 itself. So it, it's a different way to do th the same thing, and it's on a, it's on a broad, on the broad index, and we find it to be a very effective tool for for income as well. So in that scenario, the options that are written are, as you said, they are on the actual index where the long exposure is owning the underlying stocks. Is that correct? That's correct. So it owns the uh, the Nasdaq 100 in the uh, the, the same proportion as the index. So within one wrapper, um, this is this represents the uh, maybe the evolution of covered writing um, on Wall Street, having gone from uh, the Wild West in, in the 70s and eventually evolving to where options began to be viewed as risk management tools. Now some of those risk management uh, tools are available within one wrapper, and so something like QILD you can have a basket of U.S. large-cap growth names that are very recognizable to many people. You mentioned Amazon or Apple or what have you. So all the, you know, the components of the NASDAQ 100 can be held within that ETF, and then the income stream is developed by overwriting or selling out-of-the-money options on the NASDAQ 100 index itself. Did I kind of get that right, Wade? That, that's correct. The NASDAQ 100, the, the index options are written slightly out of the money to or, or at the money, depending on the, the next nearest strike at expiry. And uh, But you're correct that it owns all 100 of the NASDAQ 100 stocks, so the, um, there's still the, the underlying participation. So, so, Tommy, I'm guessing these types of things would have yeah. been attractive to you uh, 30 years ago? Well, yeah. yeah. Well, here's 30 years ago, probably. Well, 30 years ago, yes. 43 years ago when I started, no. But what the reason that these make sense is I went along the way and I learned more about this. And thanks to the late, great Jimmy Yates, who was one of my mentors, I think the greatest person in the option business, really shed so much light on this. It brought me back to Statistics 101. And when you think about Stat 101, we're talking about um, we're talking about implied volatility in essence. If you look at men's heights in the world, you'll find that some of us are too tall and we tend to be on basketball teams. You'll find that some of us are too short. Uh, we're on the lower end of the bell curve. But you'll find that 68% of us in America fall within one standard deviation above or below trend. So anyone who's thinking, yeah, I never had statistics, go to Google and type in normal distribution and learn about it. What you'll find is if you were looking at women's blood pressures around the world and in developed countries, you'd find it was normally distributed. 68% of those women's blood pressures will fall within one standard deviation above or below trend, and then the rest will be spread out where some, some blood pressures are way too high, some are way too low. 
when you look at the stock market, it's the same way. It's normally distributed. So what you'll find is 68% of the time, things in the stock market are doing what I call middling. They're kind of hanging around the center. You know, you can look in your own customers' portfolios. Yeah, you may have owned Amazon for the last 200 points, but look back over the years and look in the stocks that you've purchased, and you'll find that most of the time, they go up a little bit, they come down a little bit. Then they go down a little bit, then they come up a little bit. And, and you look at that back and forth motion is really what's happening in the stock market, and you'll find that the stock market, in general, I know you could have some PhD tell me, ah, oh, it's not quite exactly this. It is normally distributed. And if you look at 68% of the time, stocks are kind of in the center, not doing much, then the right strategy 68% of the time is a neutral strategy. So let's think for a second, what can you do compliance-wise in a customer's portfolio? Well, there's a neutral strategy called a naked straddle. Can you do that? No, nope, can't do it. There's a naked combination. Can you do that? No, nope, can't do that. There are iron condors. Can you do that? No, nope, couldn't stand up in front of a judge and, and make that case. The only thing that you could make a case for in a customer's portfolio that makes absolute sense is a covered right. And I tend to be a covered writer myself. Running the option department for so many years, it doesn't take me long to buy a particular stock and begin to feel uncomfortable. And the second I feel uncomfortable, I sell a call. And once I sell a call, it's like I sat back down into that easy chair and, and, uh, you know, I, and I know I'm going to be right most of the time by doing that. So the beauty, excuse me, the beauty of having these covered rights wrapped up into an exchange-traded fund makes all the sense in the world because this way you don't necessarily have to talk to the customer about all the pieces of the equation and how those work if you were going to do covered rights yourself in a portfolio. This does it for you. So when I look at a portfolio like this, I might say, look, I'm going to do modern portfolio today, which 80% of you out there do, modern portfolio theory. But how else do you want to stay in the game? I'm going to add income to the customer's portfolio, and over here I'm going to buy some ETFs that do some unique things that are designed to add income to the portfolio. Now you're making yourself different. You're putting a couple of things together. This is what I call ETF alchemy. Um, how can I put some things together to create something different? Just like the alchemists of years ago, I think they used probably 90% religion and prayer and 10% mixing around with chemicals. They eventually were not successful to create gold, but they did create the science of chemistry. So you have that unique opportunity here to use kind of, in my mind, the science of chemistry where you put a couple of things together and those two things together yield something else. And that's something else to me is golden. And that's the covered right that can go into anyone's portfolio and stand up against any, uh, I think, compliance situation. So on the site, we've got tools um, that would allow someone to do that through an ETF model. And we have tools that um, help advisors find covered right ideas um, uh, on an individual stock basis. Every day we, we publish covered right ideas in our daily research. And Tommy, I know that one of your favorite tools on the site is the implied momentum tool, and that's a tool that uh, it puts stocks on that bell curve, as you mentioned. You can sort them. You could look at the entire S&P 500 on a curve or, say, the S&P 100 um, uh, if that was the, the universe you wanted to deal with. And what you would see with the S&P 100 today and really for the past week is that it's a very normally distributed curve. 
most stocks are in zones three, four, and five. Uh, however, very interestingly, uh, the technology sector has been very much in the news after the NASDAQ 100 pulled back about 3% in two days, and you had stocks like um, you know, Amazon was off uh, 90 points peak to trough in, during those two days. Uh, Priceline, uh, another you know big growth uh, stock that uh, many people uh, watch, use, follow, whatever, that was down 100 point, uh, per, uh, points from peak to trough. Now these are thousand dollar stocks, so you know a, a 90 point peak to trough move in, in Amazon is still less than 10 percent, but it's still the type of thing that might um, rattle the nerves a bit. But if you looked at that technology sector, in two days, we went from a zone six market, where if you looked at the technology sector and on that implied momentum tool, you would see things stacked over in zone six. And then two days later, what you see is now a much more normally distributed uh, uh, picture with a lot of stocks in zone three, zone four, and five. So Tommy, for someone using that tool, how would they use that to find covered rice? Yeah, well, here's the thing. Um, let's talk about zone for a second. The reason that we use the term zone is because standard deviation scares people. And you don't want to use those terms when you're talking with a customer. So when you divide up a normal distribution into six standard deviations, those are six volatilities in essence, or six zones. So when you look 68% of the time, you're going you're gonna to see a very normal market. But there are sometimes, like in the technology area, over the last few months where technology has really taken off, these stocks exit that, that, let's say, zone three and zone four, dead center of the bell curve. They exit that and start taking off towards the zone five and zone six. When you look at that normal distribution and you see everything skewed over to the right-hand side of that bell curve, you're in a very high-risk situation, plain and simple. This is the most beautiful way to look at the stock market, and I'm going to tell you 99.9% .9 of the people don't do it this way. When you look at that thing and you were skewed to the right-hand side of technology, the probability was extremely high that what technology wants to do, it wants to go back to normal. It just wants to go to home base, and home base is right in the center of that bell curve. Well, how does it get to home base? One of two things can happen. Is technology stocks just stay dead in the water where they are, and the bell curve catches up to them because it's dynamic, or they correct? Typically, they correct. And they corrected right back down to a situation now, Paul, where everything looks perfectly normal with technology. You'd, you'd want to use that curve now to find those stocks that have become a little more oversold, maybe buy those stocks and sell calls. But the beauty of the implied volatility of what we do comes from Jim Yates's concept, which is this is absolute, uh, I'll tell you, art. And he looked at this and said, you know, each stock has its own normal distribution. So if you look on the right-hand side, of every one of our charts, you'll find top, median, and bottom. So if you, on, if you took the chart on its side and drew a bell curve, you're talking about the center, which would be median. That's where, that's where the stock wants to be. Top would be 100% over, overbought. That would be three standard deviations above trend. Statistically, it would say you see 99% of all observations. And 100% oversold, BOT would be bottom, would be where if it got down to that level, you are three standard deviations below trend. And I tell you, go Google this and Google, go Google uh, normal distribution. So if you look at the standard and poor's right now, and you say, okay, where do we stand with the S&P? Well, we've gone past center. If you looked at the, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, the QYLD is what I'm looking at here. I want to, I want to put the uh, SPX up there. The QYLD is relatively normal where it should be, where I would expect it to be. The S&P now, um, 
the SPX is at 2440. Now, in order to be 100% overbought, which would be three standard deviations above trend, it would be at 2460. So you got 60 more points on the upside in the S&P, where you definitely want to be selling calls against that position. You're so high up there. Where does it want to be? If you look on our chart, you look at the bell curve on the right-hand side, where does the S&P want to be? It really wants to be at 2380. That's where it's perfectly normal. Well, how would I be able to know which six standard deviations these were? I would simply take the, bot the top of 2640 minus the bottom of 2300 divided by six, and you'll know exactly what each standard deviation is equal to. So it's a beautiful visual way of looking at it. And what Jim Yates did, which is so unique, is, he, is each stock, if, I don't care what, if you just look at IBM, let's just take a stock and look at IBM. And I'm not, I'm not diverting here, I just want you to understand the concept here of the covered writing and, and the way we might look at it. IBM got hit, was, 100, was way over the 100% overbought at 170. That stock corrected all the way down to 150. 146 was 100% oversold. It stopped right there, creating a higher bottom. It's now one box away from perfectly normal, 156. So every single stock has its own bell curve. So if I looked at IBM and I said, let's take a big mother bell curve of the S&P 500, and I'm going to make six, six standard deviations, but let's call them zones because we don't want to scare anybody, and I'm going to place IBM under that big mother bell curve. Where am I going to place it? Well, it's just one box away. 158 is median, dead center of that bell curve. It's at 156. So you're going to see IBM, the symbol IBM, sitting almost dead center of that bell curve. Then when you take all 500 of the S&P 500 stocks and you place them under that bell curve on their own normal distribution, you get the most beautiful way of looking at the overall market on whether it's overbought, oversold, normal, or whatever it happens to be. So if I was looking at doing covered rights, <coughs> excuse me, from the S&P 500, I would take that normal distribution and I would simply look at zones three and zone four where stocks are perfectly normal, where the probability is 68% they're going to hang right around that area, and I'm going to buy a good quality stock with a good chart pattern, and uh, if it's got an acceptable premium, I'm going to buy the stock and sell the call. I do that all the time in my own portfolio. So sorry to be long-winded there, but that's a great visual of, of, of how you want to look at the market. And, and you know, for yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. What, uh, what Tom was, was saying is that's kind of how the practical application works in our portfolios because with HSPX, we write the, the, the 25 delta, so 75% of the, of the upside is catcher, captured, and then the 25% the of the time is those, those outlying events that, that Tom was, was alluding to. So he's saying, two-thirds of the time or 68%, we kind of cover for 75%. We want, to, we want to capture a little bit of a bigger range, and then the 25% would be the outlier activity. And so for way, a lot of the time, as Tommy mentioned, 68% of the time, the covered right is a right answer. And um, with HSPX or, or just with a, a product that is um, always overridden, then you know the downside of an investor was going to say, well, here's my pros, here are my cons. Um, one of the times where they might view a, a downside of the product would be, you know, in a really strong, you know, bull market. Um, the expectation here is participate in, as you said, about 75 percent. 
well, that extra 25% is something that uh, an investor would view as an opportunity cost. In a sideways or middling market, then that income stream could produce an environment where a covered right might actually do better than uh, the long-only position. And in a downward market, um, the income stream is able to manage risk and provide something that someone that is long-only won't have uh, in terms of uh, you know, risk management and perhaps a bit added return or alpha uh, through that type of a market. And, um, but would you view that as maybe one of the downsides that you have to introduce to uh, an investor is that in a very prolonged steep uptrend, um, a covered right portfolio is not necessarily designed to participate fully? That's absolutely correct. That when, when the when the market is strong, bull, and trending in that direction, um, the the it is like you said the opportunity cost of getting the um, the additional income. It's essentially um, it's like you can't get something for nothing. This is um, you're you're gonna trade some of the upside for for the the added income that you will get in other situations. It's just it's something that the investor has to give up in order to get the income. And I thought it was um, you know years ago when Horizons approached us about developing a model, um, it was a very um, it was a good great fit because they had this strategy in HSPX that if there was a, a you know a primary downside, it was that well in a you know five-year bull market that's a product that's not designed for full participation. And we looked at some of the products that Dorsey Wright has been involved in over the years, and we said, gosh, you know, um, we know that momentum um, or our, our ETFs that are fully invested, we know that, you know, they are designed to remain fully invested and they can have some of their, um, some of their best periods can be in rising markets because uh, we're able to follow leadership trends and invest in uh, 10% of the market as, of, as opposed to the entire market. And so you can benefit a, a bit from sector and style rotation that way. And so here we have momentum products like PDP, which is a PowerShares DWA mo momentum product um, that can do, um, can do quite well in a trending upward market, but there's no risk management in a downside market. And then there's products like HSPX that um, can be somewhat limited in a you know, dynamically performing market, but can add a lot of value and, uh, and as Tommy would say, you know, 68% of the time, so markets that are moving sideways or, or declining. And so we developed a model um, on our platform that just puts the two together. And it says um, those periods in which we expect equities to be a very, U.S. equities to be a very stable asset class, we're going to overweight uh, momentum product, PDP, and we'll underweight the covered right uh, portion with HSPX. And when that's not the case, we will obviously want to overwrite or overweight the covered right uh, position in HSPX and underweight momentum. And so um, our approach is simply to use our, our U.S. equity asset class ranking. And when U.S. equities are in favor, ranked, ranked highly in Dolly, it overweights momentum. And when, it, um, uh, when U.S. equities are not in favor, uh, the model will go and overweight the covered call uh, position. And so it's a unique approach uh, to using a very unique product and it's one in which uh, I think could be very easily explained to investor clients. It's a very straightforward model, has very few moving parts, but it's the type of thing that can take advantage of, you know, the evolution of, of options in our business to be able to provide something that has the unique uh, performance characteristics of covered writing, 
but to do it right inside of a, a single QCIP ETF. Um, so we've I seen a lot of beautiful. Yeah, it's um, it, it does. Uh, it's a unique model that uh, hopefully many of you that are listening to this may not have been familiar with either the model or familiar with um, all that has gone into that pro that type of product HSPX being on the market. Uh, options have a long lineage within the business, but the way that they are used today is certainly, as Tommy explained, quite a bit different uh, than the way he might have used them back in the mid-1970s. Um, so uh, thank you both for joining us. Uh, geographically, this was a bit of a feat to make this happen. So uh, thank you, uh, Tommy, for uh, making yourself available. Thank you very much, uh, Wade, both for being available here and for your support. Of, uh, of our clients uh, through what you do at Horizons ETFs. So thank you both very much for joining us on this podcast. And thank you all uh, out there listening. We appreciate it. And uh, we will be back again next week.